Episode 12 of Rig brings part one of the only interview with the former Hinton chemist who started it all, Annie Dukin. This interview took place a few weeks after Annie was released from prison in March of 2016. It seems Annie might have some explaining to do after potentially giving false information to investigators. You are not going to want to miss this episode. As always, subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. Enjoy. And so now we're going to roll right into Annie Dukin's interview, which um, took place in March, early March of 2016. And a few months after this, um, for some, I have no, do you guys have any idea why they brought her in? Her of all people that hadn't worked as a chemist for years? Well, I mean, I, I think the question is not, not why they brought her in. Uh, I'd bring her in uh, 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 every day if I were an investigator. But um, my understanding is they didn't bring anyone else from Hinton. In. Right. Yeah. So why her? Why that's, her? That's curious. But one of the things I noted, that interview took place like right after she was uh, let out, I think, on parole. So I'm wondering if that had anything to do with it. Um, right. I, I tried to figure out um, if I could get a public records request um, from the Department of Corrections to see whether or not the Attorney General's office submitted something um, to get her out on her first chance at parole uh, in exchange for um, this interview, but they wouldn't release anything like that. So uh, that's been a lingering question in my mind if they thought uh, they had leverage on this person and could get sort of whatever they wanted out of her. Right. Well, but do you, do you remember when she was released? I I remember because like she was out of jail and they did not like no one knew that she was out of jail. And then all of a sudden, like months later, it was released that she had been released from prison. Like they released her in like February, I think. And I was in I was in the midst of litigation with her at the time. So I had filed a suit, uh, a lawsuit against her and, 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 and um, Ms. Nassif, Mr. Salemi. Uh, Mr. Renchkowski, um, Betsy O'Brien, um, and I believe Linda Hahn, and, and Annie Dukin ignored the lawsuit essentially, uh, and 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 I was operating under the assumption that she was incarcerated, uh, and I agree that I was a little surprised when I found out that she had been out for some time. Um, and it was well under; she was three to five, I believe, was her sentence. That and, sounds right. Yeah. And she was done in like two and a half, not even. So Right. They, she served barely more time than any single one of the cases where her, she directly contributed to someone being um wrongfully imprisoned. Um right. you know, most of these are if you they tack on a school zone, uh, that's two years um uh right there. So uh if you put it in that context, she did not uh, assuming she was the sole bad actor, which I, I don't believe, but if you accepted that premise, then it seems odd that she would serve um, uh, uh, time that was sort of a fraction of the total amount of years that she um, wrongfully um, incarcerated people. Yeah. And when we do a, I, I want to do a, an episode on, uh, because the OIG said that you know, we didn't, we never found out her motive. I want to do an episode on her motive after, after this, 
But right. OIG said they never found out what her motive was, but it was definitely not to convict, you know, people. It was not to con- to help prosecutors convict defendants. And uh, there's one email where she literally jokes and says, tell, uh, tell the defendant he's getting an extra five years for pissing off the chemist and not taking a plea deal. Like that is one of a myriad of emails that she has where she does like Gronkowski touchdown spikes every time someone takes a plea deal. She's like, woohoo! And, you know, like, anyways, we'll, we'll keep that in mind as you listen to this interview. Let's go with the first clip, Randall. All right, first clip coming up. Here today with Annie Dukin. Nicholas Gordon, attorney for Annie Dukin. Okay. Um, okay. Former Norfolk County ADA, Nicholas Gordon. Um, should we just roll into the next one? Yeah, just roll into the next. And can you please explain, Sherry Gordon, what that letter is? Uh, this is a proffer letter, which indicates that uh, the individual who signs it, in this case, my client, Annie Dukan, uh, indicates to them that they uh, can answer any and all questions uh, posed to them during this meeting without fear that their answers will be used against them in the future in some sort of uh, uh, criminal prosecution. Uh, it, however, advises and warns the individual signing it that if they were to uh, make any false or misleading statements in response to any questions, that uh, they, they could face separate charges based on that. It also explains that uh, any other um, investigative uh, or law enforcement uh, um, body other than the Massachusetts Attorney General's office, were they to uh, become in possession of statements made today, could, if they chose to, uh, initiate uh, criminal proceedings, though that is certainly not something that uh, we would ever expect to happen. Um, that's my understanding of the substance of the, the letter. And Ms. Dugan, you've had an opportunity to review this letter with your attorney? Yes. And your signature appears uh, on this letter? Yes. And it's dated today's date, March 3rd, 2016? That's correct. And your attorney's signature is below that, correct? Yes. Dated the same date, March 3rd, 2016? Yes. And can you just briefly, your attorney gave an, an explanation. Can you just please, for us, in your own words, tell us what this, uh, this letter that you signed means? To my understanding, the letter says that I, whatever I say cannot be used against me further on unless I say false information and test, um, give you false knowledge of anything else. Um, <clears throat> um, I, If I do give you false statement, uh, further charges can be um, given to me. I would also add that if she were to say something in the future... <laughs> that would uh, be inconsistent with what she said today, then what she said today could be used to rebut what she were to say in the future as well. And she understands that. That's why she didn't say it. (laughs) All right. Um, That's interesting to keep in mind. Let's go. Next one, training. Um, Now, specific to the Hinton Laboratory, uh, when you came in and you started your employment at uh, the Hinton Laboratory, who was the chemistry who was your supervisor? Um, it was Kevin McCarthy and Charles Salemi. Okay. I believe, yeah. So is, um, and it's my understanding when you become a chemist for the Department of Public Health, the Hinton, Mm -hmm. and also the Amherst Laboratories, it was on-the-job training? Yes. So it was Mr. McCarthy that you shadowed? No, Charles Salemi. You you shadowed Charles Salemi. And can you just briefly, very briefly walk through some of the, some of your training and what you, what was asked of you? Um, basically, uh, he 
I watched him as he did weighing the samples, taking descriptions of the samples. Log, I should start from the beginning. As you get assigned the samples, the pro protocols for doing that, um, requesting samples, um, checking them, making sure they were right, right samples, confirming the names, the towns. Um, then once we do that, we then go into the lab, sign out the samples, go into the lab, take it, put it into your locker, or um, and the next step is to test them. So we would take a description of it, fill out a form, the drug form, fill out that, take a description of the sample with detail, um, take a weight of the sample, get a net weight, or, um, and then do preliminary testing. Um, he would show me for the different types, suspected type of narcotics, you had certain tests, color tests, um, my, microscopic testing, um, instrumentation testing, and then um, continue the process of filling out the form, and then we can send it for confirmatory testing, the samples that needed confirmatory testing to mass spec. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, the next one is for, are you guys interested in how, what she says for how long they train for? Or we could describe the pot testing. I know that's one of your favorites, Ilias. This one will, uh, but let's, let's skip the, how long do you train and just go right to the, the next one round the, the pot testing versus heroin. All right, here we go. Um, how would you categorize the, or how would you um, characterize, excuse me, the samples you were given early on? Was there any specific drug that you were asked to test or was you were testing a variety of substances? Um, in the beginning, it was just unknown substances. Um, it could like, and suspected vegetable matter. Let me say vegetable matter. You mean marijuana. marijuana. Yes. So what, um, so you only being assigned marijuana samples in the beginning? Marijuana at the beginning, and then we did um, substances, just different. If it was cocaine, heroin, whatever, powdered substances. Powdered substances. How would you categorize, uh, characterize, excuse me, the marijuana testing? Was it difficult? Uh, was it easy? It was easy. Um, it wasn't, once again, it's been a while. Um, it was just uh, weighing, taking a description, um, weighing the sample, then doing color tests. Um, now, comparing that to maybe a heroin sample, what would, in your your mind, be more difficult to test? Heroin or vegetable? To heroin. Okay. And why is that? It's more It's more detailed. It's more, um, you're looking for specific, there's more color tests involved. There's more, um, the mass, the GC might be, another instrumentation might be involved as well. Okay. So this question, I know if you, if you could estimate for us, um, you know, how many marijuana samples could you maybe do in one day? Depends. If it's just single baggers or something like that. A single bag. Yeah. Use that as an example. Um, you could probably do 50 or so plus. I don't okay. know. Honestly, yeah. Now compare that to, say, heroin or powdered cocaine, and it was just simply single bags. How many of those could you do in a day? <laughs> if you remember. Um... It all depends. I mean, um, on the t if it is positive for that substance, you would stop at a certain point. But if it's not, you would go on for further testing. So there, there, so, yeah, there, there's got and the same thing with marijuana. If it's not, if that color test doesn't give 
the same reaction you would go on to further testing. So it all depends on the sample. On the sample itself. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a situation you say marijuana is much easier than heroin, or, or is, is that the case? It's not. Like I said, if it's if the color test follows through is that how we're supposed to do it, it's easy. Okay. But once again, each sample, each individual sample is takes on its own characteristics. Dude, right there, Ilias. That says it all. Go right. ahead. I, I know we're we're thinking the same thing. Go ahead and Well, I I mean the 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 you know the, this is a scientific lab and the idea that you do a test and based on the results it dictates uh where you go uh is is sort of one of the most basic um um failures uh of scientific method and experiments an experiment regardless of the result and uh if it, you know if you if you think you can knock down a 10 foot uh uh pot on a in a golf tournament uh the, you, the only way to find out is actually to make that putt but if you get unlimited numbers of tries at making it, then yeah, of course, anyone can eventually make one. Um, the question is, can you make it uh, on your first and, and only try? Um, and that's the issue here that, that drives me crazy every time I hear it, is that the results are somehow guiding uh, how much work is put into it. And so you, you just heard that a negative result takes longer. And, and I think given the backlog, uh, uh, there's right there a motive. If that's true, there's a motive to fudge results because you don't want to have to deal with uh, more work. Um, and uh, uh, even though the, the true answer should be, if it's negative, you're done. Right. Right. If you're negative, negative, it's not different than positive in a real world. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think I've used the analogy before of if you were pulled over by an officer who asked you to take a breathalyzer test and you blew on it, and the officer looked at the thing and said, mm, can you blow again? What's your reaction going to be? You're going to be like, uh, 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 respectfully, hell no, officer, let's go with the first result. Um, and there's something inherently flawed with any second result, any third result, given the earlier results. So this idea that you could test ad nauseum, which the OIG confirmed, and there was never any real discussion of why they were multiply, testing multiple uh, times and for, for what purpose, meaning what was the policy being furthered and what was the scientific basis for testing a, a, a sample uh, essentially unlimited times until you got the desired result and then concealing the earlier results from criminal defendants. Right. They didn't say, oh, we tested it once and it was negative. Then 40 other times we tested it, it was positive. And Dukin, part of Dukin's, you know, when she was arrested, part of what they arrested her for, charged her with, was turning negatives into positives. That She was actually busted. I mean, that, that is something she is admitted to. That's something that she was actively doing. Which is what you're essentially doing when you test it more than once. If it comes right. back negative, in my opinion... And I'll defer to a chemist because I think there, there could be a, an explanation for how, you know, you might want to do some analysis to determine whether there was a flaw in your first experiment. And, and I'm not really talking about that type of uh, 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 approach. That's not what they were doing here. What they were doing was they were simply compounding tests until they got a desired result. And the OIG's investigation uh, and CPCS's investigation has shown that that was essentially just uh, trying it uh, over and over again until you got what you liked. 
uh, even if you had inconsistent results. Let me just like interject, like a legitimate reason, for example, why they might retest something uh, in the mass spec uh, or the GCMS uh, is if they determined the injector needle was broken, which is something you can physically assess. And you see the test results are all wonky. And so, all right, uh, that's something that we can note and then rerun the samples. But this is sort of different. Right. Yeah. This is getting a result. No, like outside of equipment malfunction. Like if there's equipment malfunction or if something is wonky with the test that would upset the the results, that's a physical attribute or something that goes wrong as part of the chemical process, that's different. If the machine fails, if something happens, that's different. But they have gone through, presumably gone through every scenario, everything checks out fine. It's just the sample reading came back as unexpected because they're expecting a positive result. That's so the here's, yeah, and 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 if if people are familiar with the phrase double blind, when 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 there's real science involved, uh, for example, pharmaceutical companies, uh, they're not allowed to know what is the expected result in the experiment. There uh, there's two sets of identically looking pills, either placebo or the active ingredient, and the doctor doesn't know which one is being administered to the patient, and the patient doesn't know which one he or she is getting. And that's important because then you have no incentive to fudge. Excuse that's me. called a double blind. Right. So here you have a situation where the Boston police will, will bring leafy substance in and say, boy, we really think this is marijuana. And then you have someone in the lab saying, okay, I guess I'm supposed to say this is marijuana. And then they test it and it doesn't come back marijuana. I guess I got to keep going until it's marijuana. Uh, there, 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 even if you are well-intentioned, the bias that that introduces into the system is so obviously uh, unacceptable. Uh, and then when you have mixed motives or bad motives, you're just playing with fire. Uh, and I don't know uh, how that has not uh, uh, caused any real reflection of our drug policy uh, and, and prosecutions in this country where the lab employees are, can't be and are not blinded. I mean, how about introducing uh, uh, placebos into the the stream so that you don't know when you unpack a gray powder if it's heroin or if it's uh, um, you know sleeping pills right. uh, agent, and then you have no incentive to fudge because you don't want to be the guy who comes back with a positive result on a placebo, and then you get you get a pink slip. But that would be doing actual scientific work, you know. Like they and, and Ilias, you, you paint a picture there of saying, "Oh, hey, we're dropping off uh, drugs." You know, here you go. What we've seen the exchanges between the chemists and the DAs. I have one where a chemist from or a DA from Norfolk County said, "This piece of shit took a shot at an officer." I have a personal vendetta against him. Right. And he sent that, and she sent that to Annie Dukin. Like, I mean, what what is Annie Dukin as as a citizen? Supposed to say like if my chem if my testing comes back negative this person's going out on the street and they're in right. this DA is saying that they're dangerous that those were the conversations that they were having. Okay, uh, next well, one. Well, oh, go ahead, Chris. The last little thing I want to note about the previous audio files. One of my favorites. There's that cute little moment where uh, they realize Caldwell uh, worded a question inartfully because he was like how many heroin samples could you do in a day? And she's like, you mean me or, or like, could one do? 
<laughs> I know you <laughs> you interjected in there while that was going on, but that was that was one of the better moments or more comical moments in the the whole thing. But anyway, agreed. All right, next clip. Mm-hmm. Oh. Now, in your time using the gas chromatograph NAS spectrometer, um, Peter Piro was the head of that wing of the, the drug laboratory at Hampton. Yes. So, did he train you on those machines? Yes. Okay. And now, could you just tell us? Um, now, tell us what was the training you received from Peter Piro? Um, um, basically, how to log in the samples when they come in. So when the uh, chemist brings it in. You log in the samples, you check the vials, make sure they have the right numbers, um, how to do uh, quality control on the instrument even before you use it, um, changing up the septums, and basic things like that. Um, then showed me how to log in the samples and pretty much create um, the log of how the samples will be run. So each individual vial, the blanks in between the vials, why we did the blanks, um, why we did the standards, the bracketing standards to make sure the instrument's working, um, and just uh, uh, preventive maintenance on the instrument as well. Um, like I said, changing the septum, checking the quality control. Um, and then <clears throat> once all that, just running the samples. Um, and shadowing him was also, he would put the samples on, I would watch him, and then we would analyze it together to see um, how everything comes out, if I had questions. And then at the end, he would give you a test of unknown samples, and you would just go ahead and do what you have to do, and he evaluated that. All right. All right. So nothing much there. Um, and next clip. Okay. How many blanks did you run? Did you run a blank every sample that was tested, or did you run it every five or ten, if you remember? I believe it's every sample. But if it's multiples, I like if you had 20 bags and they did the 10% rule, something like that, something like that. And so you took, like, three, three vials. It would be one, two, three, a blank before one, two, three, then a blank after. Okay. Sometimes it could be double blanked. It all depends on if um, the chemist itself thought it was too strong or something. So like the first point, you know, she starts talking uh, at the beginning of the clip about sampling, like the square root or whatever. The OIG's report gets into um, how they were doing sampling of large samples incorrectly, and it definitely impacted trafficking cases. Um, so, uh, that's an important thing to just start out with. <laughs> right, can you, can you elaborate, uh, uh, Chris, because the average person, uh, who's able to stay awake, uh, uh, when there's science being discussed and then you add math into it and it's, it's going to be game over, but what is sampling in a trafficking case? And, and more importantly, what does sampling allow the government not to do? Uh, what is it? What what is being bypassed by by virtue of sampling? So this is about when, um, let's say, there's a um, police submission of a thousand heroin packets um, in any given case, and without getting into the math, the uh, there are statistics about um, how many samples you actually test, and then what you're able to say 
about the group in general, um, about identity and weight. And uh, there are approved swig drug uh, approved methods for determining um, what is in the sample and what you should report. And they were not doing that. And so to the OIG's credit, they did go back and look at a number of trafficking samples and figured out where that was a really important issue that the defendant didn't know about. And they say in the report that they contacted these people. Um, I, I assume that that's true, um, but. Yeah. Well, it, so, I mean, I, I guess the, the point, uh, and I'm going to color this with my personal views, but um, I'm, I'm personally very skeptical that you could, that you could use sampling to extrapolate uh, where there's no uh, proof that the the individual samples all come from a common source, um, I think that would that that there's an issue there. If you go to the grocery store and and there's um, uh, you know hood milk, uh, okay, pr- presumably all 20 bottles came from the same fact the plant, uh, and you could do some sampling and make some conclusions based on sampling them. And by the way, I like hood milk, so nothing wrong with that. Um, but uh, but the uh, the idea that you you have uh, a thousand little baggies of heroin that you found in the trunk of someone's car, um, th- there's nothing about that that tells you that these all came from the same source, uh, or that there's any sense that they're of similar purity, quality, quantity, etc. Um, so why are we letting people sample? But be that as it may, Swig Drug allows it. Then you got to you got to follow the the the, gui- the guidelines because if you're plunging below them, you're te- you're testing too few, and then saying that basically everything else is what I'm going to tell you it is. I didn't test it, and so there's something. Um, it's 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 a it's a type of cheating uh, that I think should have been met with with a stiffer response because you are you are waving a magic wand over a majority of the samples and saying they're drugs when you did not test them. Yeah, I mean, so there is a legitimate way of doing this, and that involves uh, criteria about, you know, you know, even as you said, trying to determine that the packages are all similar and came from the same place. Um, maybe you're not be, you won't be able to figure out exactly where they came from, but at least you uh, make sure the packaging is similar for each one and that the contents appear to be similar. Um, but aside from that, um, getting back to the rest of the audio segment, um, she was getting into uh, what they were doing with blanks, uh, which is important. So when you have a, a GCMS run, you have the standard, you want to have blanks, um, which is just um, sort of empty vials in order to see whether or over whether there was any type of carryover effect, which could happen if the injection needle, um, isn't cleaned properly and carries over um, some of what was in the preceding vial. So um, it, it's sort of alarming that they don't have a standard procedure uh, about or protocol about how many blanks uh, should be run each run. If you listen carefully, she was saying how it's sort of up to the chemist. Right. And and how depending on the sampling case, so she used the example. I forget how many bags you had, but did she say thirty? I just don't remember. I think she said um, twenty. Twenty. So out of that twenty, you're going to test three of them, right? So 
don't worry about what's in the other 17. We're only going to test three of them. And you can put those consecutively without a blank in between. Well, the issue with contamination is if the first sample, uh, uh, the first sample could contaminate the next sample, and you're going to say, so if the first sample was heroin, you're going to say the second sample was heroin because of contamination, and you have no way of detecting that. That's the point of a blank. Right. And so the idea that you're that she's sort of assuming that no defendant would 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 object to having uh, part of his sample contaminate the rest of his sample. Uh, I mean, that's that's the whole point of blanks is to avoid that from happening. Right. The perfect thing is at the Amherst lab, they just weren't using blanks and taking and taking standards out of a bucket. Because I didn't didn't Hanchet say that you could tell by looking. Right. So, what oh, yeah, that's right. You can eyeball it. Come on. It was that like one of these other trained chemists who wasn't on LSD would be able to determine when a a vial had been contaminated. But there's like, that's the purpose of blanks. You can't do it without them. You can't just look at it and somehow magically determine that. Right. And and I think Hanchett also. Unless you're Jim Hanchett. And I think Hanchett also said he could tell when his secondary or I, I I take that back. His tertiary standards were um, falling apart because you'd see a secondary peak. Uh, but of course, he wasn't very good at that, apparently, because somehow uh, he handed a piece of paper to Luke Ryan with a, se- uh, uh, with a second peak um, that, that he had told us, convinced us that uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. Just don't pay attention. Just listen to what he says. That's what meant. Okay, so here. Which clip is this, Jamie? Uh, I believe it's clip eight. What are standards? All right, here we go. Now let's um, let's talk about standards. Can you tell me what standards are? The standards are what we use to get a guideline for. So we had two standards, uh, bracketing standards for every ten samples. Um, the standards were used as a guideline to make sure that the sample was, for instance, if it was cocaine, we would run a cocaine standard against this unknown sample. The standards were used for retention time. And and ion picks as well, which is like a fingerprint of that um, that's that standard. Um, okay, and um, <clears throat> those standards are essentially it was the known substance and be that compared against the unknown substance. That's correct. And do you, do you excuse me? Do you know where these standards came from? Yes. Where did they come? They are purchased from an outside vendor um, and then turned into the and then. It gets locked into a safe, and then we make up these standards. It's supposed to be documented um, how much you're using, and and then we run it on the mass spec and check them for retention time and to make sure they are what they exactly they were. Okay. Yes. Now, um, did you yourself have access to the standards? Do you have to ask somebody for them? You had to ask. Okay. And, and it, that was all a sign-out process. You had to indicate how much you used, correct? Right. When you're making the standards, um, you had to ask when you were in the mass spec um, room. Those standards are have already been checked. So you just take a standard and put it on the mass spec. Okay. So we got an idea. We, we've been going over standards. This is what Annie thinks are standards. Now, the next one is where... Um, could be in accordance with our lawyer. There, there could be a false statement that's made. Let's go next clip. You said you want to go. Hold on. Uh, sorry, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, I just always want to be the devil's advocate here. One of the things that they are doing, which 
was good was running multiple standards per GCMS run. We'll get into what the standards were, but uh, a reason why you don't just run one at the very beginning of the GCMS run of 100 files or whatever is it's more efficient if the machine later breaks down because of a power failure or if there's a problem with, um, like I said before, the in injection needle, you can try and pinpoint which part of the run is still usable. So having standards um, at various increments throughout the run is actually a good practice. So I just want to, when, whenever I can, to be fair, I just want to note things that they were doing which are positive. Oh, that's true. And there's also QC mix, which right. is a, a, com, a com, combined, um, uh, uh, it's a mixture of, of different standards um, that is de also designed to um, demonstrate that the machine is actually articulating um, accurate uh, uh, data. Uh, and I, and, and it, it, I, I believe they, there was some effort to comply with those requirements. Um, I think, as, as you said, that's not the issue. We'll, we'll get to the issue, but that they certainly were, I think, making some attempt to comply with, with some of those guidelines. And can I play anti-devil's advocate? They always say that, they, um, that they're comparing a known to an unknown. They knew what they were testing, it, it, as far as I've seen, because the DAs literally told them, like, you're getting this, you're getting this. I've, I've seen those emails where they're like, cocaine, you know, they, they knew a lot of what they were testing, right? In the lab? Right. Right. It was not double blind. Yeah. Yeah, it's a suspected cocaine or whatever on the drugs itself. Yeah. So they knew what they were looking for. So they keep saying an unknown to a known, that's not what they were doing. But you're right, they were submitting, you know, things through uh, to uh, standards through uh, to, to get little uh, placeholders for their testing. All right, next one. Right. I want to be fair. Now, do you know who ordered the standards for the Hinton Laboratory? Either Peter Pera or Charles Slim. Okay. Charles Slim was the head of the lab, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, did did um, Charles Slim or Peter Pera, did they ever... Um, clean up a sample in order to use it as a standard? If you know? Not to my knowledge. You know what I mean when I say yeah. that, right? So it would be yeah. essentially taking from maybe a trafficking case of police submitted evidence and breaking it down and then using that in the machines. Yeah. And your answer is you don't recall them ever doing that? I don't recall Marijuana. Well, I they use not for standards. They used it for um, like quality control, not for using it as a. I know I I can recall a marijuana instance. Okay. So we had old marijuana that was in the freezer, and he I don't know where it came from. So and we would have to do quality control each day on the marijuana. He would take a piece of that put it in there and we would do quality control. Okay. That's the only thing. I can okay, just, but just to clarify, to the best of your knowledge, no individual ever took from the police sample and used that in the machinery. Not to my knowledge. Sure. And you never you never did that no. yourself, Okay. <laughs> this is one of the more amazing things um, of any of these interviews. Um, so if you go to what the second document that I emailed to all of you, um, it's labeled QC of GCMS qualitative standard. 
Um, in Annie Dukin's writing in the section standard slash control, it says heroin hydrochloride secondary standard. There's a date 4-1702, the pairing analyst ASD, that's Dukin, that's her initials. And then there are sections in this form where it says manufacturer of standard, lot number, expiration date, date received. That's because I guess the person who created the form template in the first place assumed that these would be coming from a manufacturer. But at any rate, it just says NA next to all of those, not applicable. And then uh, down at the bottom, um, there's Charles, Charles Salemi's signature and Peter Piro's initials. Um, so, so Dude, literally she runs the gambit one form. Yeah. her entire test, her her whole statement. Cool, right? Not and, only was she so, doing it, but they signed off on it. Awesome. So that's one thing. And then uh, I want to underscore: it's not just this one page that I found. You know, there are years worth of QC logs where sporadically, whenever they tested this, it's the same sort of sheet. But then going back further, like what actually is this sample? I sent you the drug powder analysis form for sample number 622386. So um, that number is listed uh, various places in the sample logbook um, as the sample that, or the standard logbook is the sample that they were using in order to generate this but there's a handwritten note saying two grams withdrawn for a secondary standard prep uh, initialed by Charles Salemi. So this, this whole deal where Caldwell is concerned about people directly pinching from samples appears to have occurred here. And uh, they continued to use this for several years. Um, and then the final thing I want to note, um, which isn't discussed in the audio but it's something that we were able to look into based upon uh, these QC documents at the bottom right-hand corner of um, that qualitative standard form. It says uh, compared to USP lot number I1. So I was like, huh, what does that mean? So I eventually figured out um, that USP, um, as we discussed in previous episodes, is a company that manufacturers these actual standards and they have um, rigid requirements about their use. So I was able to find catalogs and it appeared to me that um, that had expired um, much earlier. So the date on, on this particular one is June 28, 2005, uh, when they're um, filling out this QC form. And the, uh, the letter that I forwarded to you from USP's general counsel states uh, that the current lot of heroin hydrochloride is lot J1G200. Lot I1 of this reference standard had a valid use date of October 1999. So this is like nearly six years later. (laughs) Oh my God. All right. I will post all of this to our Twitter account and maybe Instagram if I ever figure that out, but I'll definitely post it to Twitter and uh, you can see these documents. Check out our Twitter at rig podcast um, to see what he's talking about. But this, I mean, this is serious business because as you heard at the beginning, if she made false statements, she could be charged. But I mean, lucky for her, these false statements would fly in the face of everything the state has been saying. So she's pretty safe. I'd say they don't want to be embarrassed. 
I sent all this to the attorney general's office and they didn't do anything. Well, they weren't investigating the Hinton lab, dude. Come on. They were only investigating Amherst. That's why they were asking how Charles Salemi, who never worked at Amherst, was making standards. You know? Come on. All right. Next clip. All right. After the, the, your training on the machinery, at some point um, at the Hinton Laboratory, a chemist would do everything, correct? They would not only do the polarity testing, but they would also do the, the machine testing, correct? Yes. You used to have, I, a, two, you used to have a tube chemist system, right? Right. And that was shortly before, that was shortly after I had my issues with the lab. Okay. So I did not partake in that one chemist system. Okay. So what she's referring to is right before the lab closed, as a result of the backlog from Melendez-Diaz, they reverted uh, from the two-chemist system that had been going on for several years back to a one-chemist system. Um, so when she says, my problem, she's referring to when they caught her in 2011. Yeah. Reading evidence and, and not actually testing stuff, dry labbing, as she called it. Um, but the one camera system, go ahead, Ilias. Well, this is another one of the issues that drives me uh, insane because the, the, the point of a two chemist system, as I understand it, is so that the second chemist is not um, uh, uh, wed uh, so strongly to the, to the, uh, uh, the preliminary test results. Um, and it's sort of having a, a check, right? It's like a check and balance to have one chemist do the preliminary test and then a secondary test performed by a different chemist. The one chemist system is essentially having one person do both of those, which I believe was to some extent taking place before anyway. Um, but um, but you've, you've sort of taken, and I, and I can't recall what Swig Drug says about this. Uh, my, my understanding was that it's, the, it's best practices to have two chemists. So to roll that back in the wrong direction is, is, a, is, a, is a huge step back. And I don't know if people were um, accurately testifying about that, um, but I know that that's essentially what Amherst was doing, right? Was, a, was right. sort of the one chemist system. They were doing everything themselves. And if you just look at how you do your work, like, are you going to fill out a form accurately by yourself? Or would you want someone checking it? If it's a, an official document who's, you know, say maybe someone's life outside of prison you know, was, was riding on, would you want to make sure that that information is accurate? And I think the answer is yes. You want someone else checking it because it would be more accurate to have someone else look at what you're doing. Uh, Reviewing the results than just having specifically one person doing the preliminary, one person doing the secondary, it's having another set of eyes looking at everything. Yeah. Right. I'm sure you did everything right. And that's how you gain accuracy, but here they didn't care. Go ahead. uh, Next clip ran. Let's play two in a row. A new individual joined the lab, and her name is Sonia Farak. Do you remember Sonia Farak? I do. Okay. And I'm just going to show you a photograph Ms. Farak. I just want to see if you recognize this photograph. Now, it's rather old. Do you recognize that? Yes. Do you mind signing and dating back at this letter? And just indicate, uh, write down who it is. It's Gary Busey, right? <laughs> Why is she signing that? Yeah, I don't. They, just in case they need to use it. Okay. And were you at the lab before Sonia, or was Sonia lab before you? Guys? No, before. Yeah. Before. And what were her 
if you remember, what were her duties at the lab when you joined? Uh, she was a chemist one. So, so she was only doing preliminary tests at that point? Yes, uh, yeah. Um, I know she went into the mass spec as well later on, but I don't know if it was when I came in or after. I don't remember. Um, <clears throat> did you have a close working relationship with her? Not really. <laughs> Not really. We talked about work. I, uh, When I first got there, um, if one of the senior staff wasn't there, uh, they were I would just watch her as she did her samples when I first got there. But um, if okay, so, did you did you shadow her a little bit? A little bit, yeah. Is there anything about her work um, looking back now that maybe seemed unusual to you or stood out stands out in your mind? No, um, she did everything. Log out the samples just the same way. Um, she asked for basically. Um, either marijuanas or powdered samples. Um, I can't, no, she did all the testing. Once I only, once I get, once again, I only shattered her on those rare occasions that I was waiting for a senior staff to. Next clip, you said? Yeah, next clip. And, and if you remember, I know it's difficult a long time ago. Um, when you were shattering her, when you were observing her, how would you characterize her work? Thorough. Thorough? She was thorough, yeah. Was she, when you characterize, was she very productive? Yes. Okay. And when I say productive, what, what do you think that means? I did a Get it ready, Chris. amount of samples. Yeah. Yes. And do you remember what type of, when you did, on those rare occasions that you were shattering her, what kind of samples was she doing? Uh, she did both marijuana and unknown substances. Okay. Um, now, um, you had the opportunity to observe her work. Obviously, you had the opportunity to just observe her as a person. Yes. Was there anything unusual that you remember about her? Perhaps maybe any physical or um, anything physical or in conversation? She's She was very quiet. You know, she sat down, she did her work. Um, she just asked me if I had questions. But no, we didn't really socialize in that aspect. So. Okay. So is it is it fair that you know do you ever have an opportunity to socialize with her outside of work? No. No. Um, was there anyone else at the lab that she seemed to speak with or socialize more than others? Um, how the lab was kind of divided. We had we were in different rooms, so she was in the room. I can't remember what team they had names for these teams, but um, she was in a different room from where I used to be in. So we didn't really interact other than in mass spec or passing around or in the mornings when she came in in the mornings but that's about it okay so i guess maybe i should ask a better way was there anyone that she was chummy with was there anyone that she would go to lunch with all the time or was there anybody that she was really close to if you remember i mean she dealt with the team lead for her group which was della saunders and they talked and all that stuff but that was just a work relationship i don't okay. you know other than that, I don't know. Um, I mean, she did mass spec. And, you know, I, I only looked at it from a work perspective. I didn't know her outside of the lab too much. No, I understand. Yeah. And again, five years prior to this, <laughs> are you and Rebecca coming down here on Wednesday? If so, it would be great to see you. <laughs> what? I, I like how there's way more questions about her, uh, Sonia Frock's physical appearance. Dude, 
they than there are reading. about the the authorization to use secondary standards um, or the uh, decision making with respect to classifying BZP as Class E. Let, let's not worry about the important stuff. How did she look? Was she wearing sweatpants to work? Was she one of those that just didn't care, even though they had a dress code? So um, we want to talk about... Yeah, the big thing I take away from that clip, and maybe the listeners didn't hear because Jamie made a comment while uh, right before it was playing, but when Caldwell asked her how productive she was, and they're talking about a tremendous... Or, you know, Annie Dukin essentially says, Farrick produced a tremendous amount of samples. And this is Annie Dukin saying this, right? Right. I'm sorry right. I stepped on that line. But I mean, <laughs> you, but you have the, what I was stepping on the line for was to tell you to, to get that ready because th- uh, you, you have played it before. You've, you've discussed before that she was doing more than Annie Dukin when she was at that lab, correct? She was processing yeah. more samples. So, um, you know, every prosecutor who has looked at this and DPH internally has said Dukin's numbers themselves should have been a red flag for management. And then if you actually take the Hinton Drug Lab evidence database and um, you, you you analyze it, you, you figure out that Farrick, uh in March of 2004 um, actually has the lab's record for the most analyses uh, of any chemist in any month ever, and she blows Dukin out of the water. It's not even close. Not even close. Right. She she out Dukin Dukin, um, and and I like how she keeps referring. By the way, not to keep harping on marijuana, but she refers to marijuana separately as unknown substances. So there's two types of things that come in the door: unknown substances and marijuana. You're guilty, right? That's what the, <laughs> the, the official name is: marijuana. Sorry, you're guilty. <clears throat> I have some vegetable matter for lunch today. <laughs> One other to mention, I'm not sure if it was in this past clip or if it's coming up, but there's a discussion about whether or not Farrick, uh, you know, was just doing the simple powder samples and marijuana, or if she was um, also processing trafficking samples. And I just wanted to uh, bring it to your attention, the audience's attention, um, Dukin and Farrick worked on one of the largest uh, trafficking samples that came through the lab uh, in 2004, not in terms of um, net weight, but in terms of packaging. So like one of the things they discussed was, um, you know, if you get a a brick of cocaine, it's a trafficking weight. It's somewhat easier to analyze than 500 packets of heroin. Right. Um, So that takes longer to analyze. So. Sample number D675083 submitted by, again, the Fall River Police Department by Detective Norbert Pacheco uh, on April 16, 2004. That was a trafficking case that uh, Farrick worked on uh, with Dugan. So, uh, again, yeah, there's this myth that the government has been, um, you know, uh, pushing. And it's it's really apparent in the Caldwell report, they want us to assume that she's just working on simple marijuana samples and very simple, simple powder samples. Nonsense. 
and she was going, wasn't she going for most of the cocaine that what I, I think you've sent something that showed that she was going for a lot of cocaine at. Yes. And that's what, that's what the questions were clearly leading to. If you knew that they were asking, was she going for anything specific? Like she was going for cocaine because that's what she was using at the time. Right. Yeah. So this statistical analysis shows that, um, she did far more total cocaine analyses than anyone else ever in the history of the lab. So that's both primary and secondary. And maybe we can put that chart up on Twitter as well, but it's, it's just immediately apparent when you look at it, that something is wrong. Right. Another interesting thing. I'm not sure why nobody was asked in any of these interviews. um, Did you ever use drugs inside the lab? Did you ever take drugs out of the lab? Right. Did you ever see anyone use drugs inside the lab? Did you ever see anyone take drugs out of the lab? Why were those questions not this, instead of, are you surprised we didn't ask anything? Why were those not the standard questions? I mean, these are, this is a situation where uh, standards appear to have evaporated um, and, and, and so that they have to make them. Uh, and there's issues with results and uh, that are uh, uh, conflicting results. Why wouldn't you worry about widespread uh, diversion or 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 use personal use? Given that you already know that at least one chemist did that, I think they do ask Dukin whether or not she suspected anyone else of doing that. But you're right; they don't ask her if she did it. Yeah, why they didn't ask her? I didn't hear them ask Hanchet. I didn't hear them ask. Um, Sharon Salem. I mean, that seems like those should be de rigueur questions, but what, what did do she I know? look like? Was she, right. did she comb her hair every day? Right. All right. Next, next. Uh, How frumpy was she? Yeah, <laughs> was she wearing sweatpants, kid? <laughs> All right. Here we go. Did you ever have the opportunity to work with Della Saunders? Yes. Okay. And can you describe that? Um, she was a good person to work with. She, she was very thorough when she did her work. She sat down. She, I shadowed her as well. Um, uh, she actually, I also shadowed her doing the math spec as well. Um, she did a lot more trafficking cases, larger cases. So I didn't really partake in that. I just watched her as she did those. But it was the same doing the weight, preliminary testing, um, and how to read a confirmatory testing. How would you characterize her work in your observations, thinking and looking back on She was very thorough from the best of my knowledge. Um, she did things with details. Um, she did it a little bit differently. Like she weighed a different way from everybody. You got the same. It's the same way of getting the weight. Like if you were one plastic bag with substance, she would weigh the plastic bag rather than just the substance and then got the weight, the net weight versus I particularly weighed the substance and then got take take the substance out and then get the net weight directly. So, so she would do gross and net just yeah. a little differently. Yeah, I mean, but the outcome is similar. Okay. Um, similar. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, did her and Sonia have any, you said, any interaction? I may have already asked that. Um, like I said, they worked in the same area, okay. so they worked in that same room, so they talked more so. Okay. Um, was she a chemist two or a chemist three, if you know? 
Our chemist three, I believe. And that was why she was doing the trafficking, right? Because she had more experience. Right. And you would, you, you would, a trafficking sample a would be much, sample. More, yes. much more difficult to test than Sam. Yes. Yes. Okay. Come on. All right. Let's get into, do you guys have something to add on, on Della Saunders? Yeah. The only reason why he may be asking uh, specifically about her is that she was the third highest producer in the lab. If you look at individual months, um, that's different from uh, the concern that Michael Wolf, the OIG's consultant, had when you look at a period of months, if they're producing uh, high numbers throughout that entire period. So when I was looking at it with my expert, we were looking for individual instances that seemed very, very high, and Saunders was the third, um, Barrick being the first, Duke being the second. And as a, another note on Saunders is she was part of what one prosecutor um, for Norfolk County deemed as the dream team. Her and Annie Dukin were called the dream team by this prosecutor because they delivered the, the results that she was looking for um, consistently. Gotta love it. That's the end of part one of the Dukin interview. Tune in next week for the dramatic conclusion. As always, remember to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you download your podcasts.